I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending April 2nd. With each year that passes, the automotive industry is getting closer to building vehicles that can drive themselves. As the technology advances, we've arrived at the point where vehicles can operate on their own some of the time, but human drivers are still absolutely necessary. This crossover area is known as Level 3 Autonomy, and it's proving to be very problematic. This week, the trouble with Level 3. Also, workers at an Amazon facility in Alabama are voting on whether or not to unionize. A look at the nature of work in the high-tech industry with the author of the book, Amazon, Behemoth Rising. First, here's a quick rundown of some of the top articles we have in EE Times this week. The biggest news this week comes from ARM Holdings. ARM is known for developing processing cores, which it then licenses to other companies. ARM-based technology is famously found in the vast majority of smartphones produced around the world, and in an increasing number of other products from Internet of Things devices to cars to supercomputers. ARM calculates that over the last 30 years, its designs have been at the heart of over 180 billion devices. The news is that the company has just announced its first major revision of its architecture in nearly 10 years from version 8 to version 9. Details about version 9 are in our story on the webpage. This is ARM CEO Simon Seegers mentioning some of the advantages of the new architecture. He's speaking during ARM's virtual event earlier this week. Alongside new security features, V9 provides a scalable vector extension upgrade, SVE2. This extends support for specialized AI, DSP, and XR workloads. AI gets a further boost too, with future graphics upgrades for matrix processing. We've been pushing hard on the AI ability of our processors for several years, and it's paved the way for a vast range of specialized applications. But AI remains hungry for ever more efficient compute power. Our partners want to realize their own individual AI futures, and it's up to us to take every opportunity to help them. Other stories cover additional details about Intel's decision to set up a large independent foundry service. There are also items on voice control technology, diamond-based quantum computers, and how a feature in RERAM memories that had been considered a drawback has been turned into an advantage that makes RERAM useful in machine learning applications. If you're on our webcast webpage, there are links to all of these stories on your left. Otherwise, you can find these and other stories when you visit our website at eetimes.com. Nobody expected to immediately replace human motorists with self-driving vehicles. Technology that assists drivers is being implemented in different ways by different automakers around the world today. Eventually, automakers will produce safe self-driving cars. Technological progress is always gradual, however, and everyone knows it. The automotive industry long ago mapped the logical steps it would have to go through on the way to achieving self-driving cars. Those steps were formalized into a list of five levels of autonomy. This stuff is critical because it plays directly into vehicle safety. Today, we're going to discuss level three. But to put that discussion in context, 
Bear with me as I quickly run down what the other levels are. At level one, the driver, the human driver, is always driving. The car can assist drivers with only one or two features, such as lane keeping or adaptive cruise control. In level two, the vehicle has multiple features for assisting drivers and can employ all of them if necessary. But just like level one, drivers are driving and they must constantly supervise these supportive features. In level three, the vehicle is able to drive itself at least some of the time. In level four, the vehicle drives itself most of the time, but is equipped with everything a human driver needs, steering wheel, accelerator, brakes, to take over if necessary. At level five, a vehicle drives itself under all circumstances. Levels one and two are similar in that human drivers are always responsible for their vehicles. Technology merely assists with driving. Levels 4 and 5 are similar to each other in that the vehicle is always or almost always responsible for driving itself. Level 3 stands out because sometimes human drivers are responsible and sometimes they aren't. When, how, and under what circumstances is complicated. Phil Coatman is an engineer and an expert in automotive safety. He teaches at Carnegie Mellon University and is the co-founder of EdgeCase Research. He participated in EE Times' recent conference on electrical vehicles and autonomous vehicles. And the audio you're about to hear is from one of the conference panels, which was moderated by my colleague Junko Yoshida. Copeman recently published his own proposal for autonomous driving levels. His version has four levels, not five, as defined by SAE International in its standard called J3016. During this discussion, you'll hear SAE and J3016 referred to several times. Junko asked Coatman about his version. So, Phil, you recently proposed user's guide to vehicle automation modes, in which you offer four categories, assistive, supervised, automated, and autonomous. Why there is no level three in your chart? Sure. There, there's a couple ways to go with this. One is that the SAE levels um, are, are well-defined. There's some, there's some gray areas in some of the definitions of the words, but it's pretty well-defined for engineers. And if I could even get the word straight to explain what level three really involves, it would still not help. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm on, I'm on the committee that writes those standards. I wasn't there in time to, to, for, that, for that one, but I've joined the committee since. And I'm reading it saying, I, wow, it's like a bunch of pages and it took me hours to figure out what level three really meant, all right? right. Uh, can you, Matt, even if you put that in the user manual of a car, yeah. <laughs> it's not going to help. Yeah. And, and you've, if you follow social media, you've seen all these discussions where, where people who are really knowledgeable about this stuff don't actually even know what all the footnotes say, right? And so it's just too confusing for a normal person. I struggled with it. Yeah. I, I don't I don't see how someone without a lot of expertise who hasn't even read the standard has has any chance, right? So so one of the reasons level three and none of the levels that are are there is that they they serve an engineering purpose, but I think they're not really a good way to communicate with with drivers, with general folks. Okay. Yeah. So that's half of it. Okay. Then what's the second part of your answer? Explain to us why level three is so problematic. 
The other half is that level three is a um, is a distinction based on which functions belong to the car and which functions belong to the driver. Mm-hmm. But from an from a driver point of view, you still have to pay attention in level three. So a driver would be hard pressed to tell the difference between level two and level three because some failures count and some don't. And it's a technical distinction that I'd go, I'm not even sure I could tell which one it was necessarily, right? It's well-defined. It's well-defined. But as a driver in a car, some of the examples I've heard, it's like, I let me go look up what that part does. (laughs) So so what happens is level three doesn't go away. I'm not saying level three shouldn't happen. What I'm saying is you can't communicate it that way to an average driver. What you have to do is say, is the driver responsible for safety? It's a yes, no question. None of this, you're responsible for safety except when you're not. And the when you're not depends on understanding the engineering details of your particular car. Okay. Well, that actually leads to the actually questions uh, from one of our audience. Uh, This person asked, they love to get Phil's perspective on current EU regulation and certification for level three? Because you said level three is not going away. So what's your perspective on regulation? I, I haven't studied the EU regulations well enough. I'm aware there's ALKS and things like this. What I've seen in a lot of statements by various parties, including regulators, is they will say something about level three that isn't actually what's in the standard. Mm. And so just because you call it, if, actually, this is even worse. Because if you say level three, and then you say things that are not actually what it says in the standard, are you importing the standard to contradict yourself? Or are you, you know, do you mean the standard overrides your regulation? You know, what's the story there? And I'm not talking about any regulation in particular. I just see this happening a lot, this dynamic a lot. So if you want to say level three, you have to buy into the standard. And the standard includes that that the driver might need to take over control with no warning time, zero warning time, and no notice from the ADS. You're supposed to just notice the car is doing something weird and intervene. And that means level three is supervised because you have to pay attention the whole time. So to the degree the regulations contradict SEJ 3016, which is what defines level three, to the degree they use level three and then say something that's not true of the standard, that's a problem, Yeah. right? right. And the degree that they expect that the driver will understand what they're talking about by invoking 3016, that's also a problem. Yeah. So if they want to say level three, and I've seen so many people say level three, and it is, just isn't what the standard says. So who knows what they mean? Right. So level three standard itself is actually... Kind of unclear and well, no, the, well, the stand no, the standard is quite is clear. clear. Okay, it's quite so clear. <laughs> There's some words that that are subject to interpretation, but it's quite clear. The problem is that very few people talk about what's actually in it. They want, they know what they want to be in it, or they know what they think is in it, and that's not what's in it. Yeah. And so you actually have to read the standard if you want to talk about it, right? Now that aside, in the the chart you saw, the point is. The driver needs to know, is the driver supposed to pay attention or not? It's a yes, no question. Yeah. Right. And to the degree the EU regulations, because it would take hour, it would actually take hours to go through and sort this out. Mm-hmm. To the degree the EU regulations say, no kidding, when the light goes on, you're in this mode, like a traffic jam assistant mode or something like that. You know, when the light goes on, the driver, they say the driver can take your eyes off the road. Great. 
But then if you say, but we're going to blame you for taking your eyes off the road if there's a crash, <laughs> you know, I don't know that that's what it says, but, and, and I, my understanding is it's, it's not quite settled yet, right? But if you get into a place where you tell the driver it's okay not to pay attention and then you blame them for a crash, I, you know, that's not a system I'd be happy to see built, let alone drive. That was EE Times Global Editor Junko Yoshida and Phil Koteman, co-founder of Edgecase Research. Can you imagine you're in your car, maybe checking your side view mirrors just to be safe, and your car screams, you take over, I'm not programmed to handle this impending situation. Human-machine interaction, or HMI, is a rigorous discipline, and the way Level 3 works simply appalls some HMI experts. They've already determined that the handoffs from car to human and back again are, to use one of my dad's favorite expressions, disasters waiting to happen. If you want to read more about avoiding such disasters, I invite you to read Junko's story. It's entitled, Driver's Responsibility Must Be a Yes or No Question. You can also review our conference, Roadmap to Next Gen, EV, and AV. There are links to both on this podcast episode's webpage, which you can find at eetimes.com slash podcasts. It is unlikely anyone would have invented the wheel if they didn't need to move things often enough to make it worth figuring out a way to do it easier, faster, or better. Technology and work have always been inextricably linked. Often enough, technological innovations change how work gets done, resulting in both jobs being eliminated and jobs being created. What's often glossed over is that the people who lose the jobs that are eliminated are rarely the ones who get the new jobs. That creates a tension between technology and work. More tension gets created when work-changing technology is looming but hasn't arrived yet. Employers can sometimes treat employees as if they're machines, and there seem to be fewer and fewer endeavors in which humans stack up well against machines. John Henry might have driven steel faster than a steam drill, but he died proving he could do it. Which brings us to one of the big stories in the tech business. At an Amazon facility in Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon workers held a vote to unionize this week. Their votes were being tallied as we recorded this episode, and the count is likely to take a few days. There are plenty of people who work for Amazon who have no problems with the company's labor practices. Others complain that Amazon tells them what routes to take through warehouse stacks, how fast to walk, how many packages they have to move per unit time, and it refuses to take any excuses for anything less than optimum activity, including rest breaks or even injury. Some employees complain they're not being treated like employees, they're being treated as machines. Now, that's part of the reason why they're looking to unionize. Amazon is, of course, opposed to that. Robin Gaster was our guest on this podcast a few weeks back, talking about how Amazon has become one of the biggest corporations in history, about its technological prowess, and about attempts by government agencies around the world to deal with a company that is innovative, pervasive, and apt to abuse its power, not only in the market, but also in things like its labor practices. The union drive at the Amazon facility in Alabama is considered extremely important. If it succeeds, it is very likely to encourage unionization efforts elsewhere, and not just at high-tech companies. 
Gaster's latest book is Behemoth, Amazon Rising. It's subtitled Power and Seduction in the Age of Amazon. What follows is a previously unaired part of the same conversation from a few weeks ago. I asked Gaster to provide more details about the union drive at the Amazon plant in Alabama. Yeah, well, I come out of um, kind of a labor background. I wrote my my thesis about about labor unions. So Mm -hmm. I I see the value of labor unions. I mean, it took a long time to create the boundaries around the economy that we now have. You know, no child labor, overtime, you know, um, rules about how safety at work should be applied. Those kind of things took a lot of struggle and a lot of years. Um, So Amazon has has pushed a model where it pays uh, for, for blue collar workers. It pays well, right? It pays minimum of 15 an hour, often 16 an hour. That's pretty good. Usually slightly higher than prevailing wages uh, in, in the areas where it's working. But the model is really complete disposability. Mm-hmm. Is the people working at Amazon are in in the warehouses are entirely disposable. And the proof of this is very simple. Amazon provides an offer to every employee there that they will buy them out every year um, at a cost of a thousand bucks a year up to five years. So peanuts. Yeah, well, but it's peanuts, but think about it. What does it say? It says, we don't care if you stay. Right. You need three grand now take it and we'll hire somebody at a lower rate because you're more experienced. We don't need any of your specific skills. Your Mm -hmm. individual skills don't matter. And if you think about it, that's obvious because Amazon hires 200,000 people to work uh, over, over the holidays. Right. Right. Well, how'd you do that? I mean, you imagine hiring five people, right? It's difficult. Because you care about whether they're any good. Well, they don't. The end, they've, they've created a working environment that is so de-skilled that they can bring 200,000 people on and make it work for six weeks. Right? It doesn't take them, you know, it takes about five minutes to learn what to do mm-hmm. because there are no skills involved. And I've, you know, I've talked to Amazon workers about how they say they're cross-training people. Well, they're cross-training them between two completely de-skilled jobs. So, you know, there's, there's not much there. So there's this disposability culture that was exacerbated in some ways in the COVID era, right? Mm-hmm. There, there was a lot of anger in the warehouses about how Amazon handled COVID. I think everybody handled COVID badly. I mean, I'm not blaming Amazon particularly here. Um, they but have, neither did they excel. No, no. I, yeah. Well, and as usual, it's all secret. Right. Right. There's no, you know, that that claim that we have to have more transparency applies to labor in mm-hmm. particular. We don't know what goes on in these. We don't even know what the turnover rate is in these warehouses. Hmm. We do know that from one court case that in Baltimore, in 13 months, they fired about a third of their workforce. That's that's the that's those are the ones they fired. You can imagine how many left, right? right. It's a it's a very physically demanding job where you have to, you have to be doing a certain set of actions every twelve seconds for ten hours. 
which right. is yeah yeah that's uh, that's extraordinary to think about it is i mean you know amazon is waiting for the day when it has robots but in the meantime it'll do its best to turn its humans into robots mm. um so so there's a lot of kind of hidden anger on the other hand in many places because of where the warehouses are and the fact that it's de-skilled work these are good jobs mm. they come with health care 15 bucks an hour overtime I mean, mandatory overtime. So it's not, you know, so there's that. But, and, um, but so there are things on Amazon's side, but you can imagine that there are plenty of cases where workers feel that they're not being treated right. It's unclear whether Amazon has any high quality training for its managers. You know, that, that seems like a kind of, they hire people pretty much out of college uh, to be managing these these plants, and they're under a lot of pressure. The only thing that really matters is throughput. Right. You have a model where you don't care if people leave, and all you need is throughput. Well, you can imagine what that looks like. And you have inexperienced managers who don't know how to really manage. I, I don't know if that's true. That seems to be the impression. Amazon doesn't tell anybody, you know, so. so that's the background. Uh, this is Amazon is very anti-union, mm -hmm. has always been anti-union, and um, do whatever they say. Uh, they, you know, they say they respect the right to join a union, but it just happens that nobody has ever joined a union there. Um, so, so in this plant in Alabama, apparently, it was enough to persuade a sufficient number of um, workers to try and join a union. Mm -hmm. and to petition uh, the National Labor Relations Board to certify an election. So they're having an election. End of March is when it comes due. Amazon has been pushing very, very, very hard against, against unionization. I think they're scared that it will spread. I mean, if it can happen in Alabama, you know, Portland surely is not far <laughs> behind. <laughs> so, um, but... Uh, you know, will it, will it be successful? Well, we don't know. We'll mm -hmm. see. Um, you know, good luck to them. So I've always been kind of fascinated uh, talking with my engineering audience. This is a set of highly skilled folks who are very proud of their skills and their education yeah. and will so many of them, even, you know, 20, 30 years into their careers will work 60, 70, 80 yeah. hour weeks, mm -hmm. always on call on the weekends. Right. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's stuff that even a factory worker might not put up with. It's really an interesting thing. And, you know, again, it's so hard to, generalized mm -hmm. to. i mean you have to have a sort of model that says okay well this is sort of what seems and my understanding of white collar work i'm not talking about senior management mm -hmm. white collar work at amazon mm -hmm. is that it, it a few things stick out one is the prevalence of small autonomous teams mm -hmm. that there are a lot of companies that you know give lip service or even have small teams but this is be, seems to be taken much further at Amazon than most, and it's why Amazon can be so um, agile and innovative 
is there are lots of paths to getting things done. And you have small teams, you can create small teams. There's a whole section in the book about how this works. But, but thinking about Amazon as a sort of really interesting <clears throat> mashup of small teams that somehow cohere into a, a reasonably structured entity to deliver services is pretty interesting. I mean, you know, hive insects sort of come to mind where everybody <laughs> does kind of the right thing, but they're semi-autonomous. You know, do you know what I mean? So, so that's one side of it. The second side is the culture, which I think is radically different at Amazon from, uh, you know, uh, insider, an insider at Amazon said that from his perspective, he understood it as being like the Jesuits or the Marines. Hmm. It's a place where you commit, where you buy fully into the objectives of the organization. If you think, I mean, I don't know about you, but I've worked at large organizations. And basically, large organizations want you to comply with the culture, right? You just do what they kind of say. So, you know, I used to work at the International Monetary Fund. And one of the things there was you wore a jacket when you went into the cafeteria. Stupid, but there it is, right? And, you know, they wanted you to comply. They didn't want you to be the person who didn't wear the jacket. So, um, but Amazon is not like that. Amazon wants you to commit, to believe, and to understand that you're wearing a jacket because of the reasons that the entity wants that jacket worn, not because you're complying, but because you believe that it's the best thing in the world to wear a jacket. So, so Amazon has that about its, and, and it focuses around its customer obsession. Mm-hmm. You know, it is obsessed with customers. They keep talking about this. It's one of their leadership principles. And when you look at their 14 leadership principles, which really are the sort of tablets of the law at, at, at Amazon. Um, all the others really serve that one. It's first among equals, absolutely. So, I, you know, so if you buy into that, then you can accept all the rest of the cultural and structural differences at Amazon because you're all serving that greater good in a, in a certain way. Yes, you want your career to progress, but it progresses by, you know, so it's in the priesthood, right? Right, right? Now, when you take in tens of thousands of new workers every year, white collar workers, most of them are not going to buy in. And that's by design. This is not, the, the idea is not, we are only going to choose those who will succeed in the priesthood. It is, we're going to choose lots and lots and lots of novice priests. And if, We'll pick a few of them, or they'll select themselves, or they'll leave. Bezos is fond of saying Amazon is not for everybody. Yeah, he's right. So, does that <laughs> answer your question in some way? Uh, it might. It might. Uh, I mean, I, I think. Uh, I think so, I when you buy is- into a mission, yeah, um, you're you're willing to subsume some of uh, you know. The, some of your other desires, um, you know, whether it's, um, yeah, we absolutely are dying to revolutionize how you listen to music. We're going to work 80 hour weeks until sure. we make an iPod. Right. Right. Um, and, it, and, and you know, the, fi- the, the, the flip side is that Amazon does offer the opportunity 
to pitch your ideas and to have turn them into reality and to get them to scale. And there are very few places, very, very, very few places where some mid-level person has that kind of opportunity. It's not, you know, it's not normal. There, there's a very direct line to a satisfying career response. Yeah. If you, if, if you can buy in and if you are prepared to, you know, accept the hazing, basically, um, then for some people, this is absolutely the best place in the world to work. It is filled with smart, committed people who are highly skilled technically. It's a tremendous place to work in that sense. But you got to give up a lot of other things. And it works for a lot of people. I mean, you know, I think it's one of those sort of selection bias things that if you talk to people inside, mostly they are really happy. You just don't talk to the thousands of people who left. That was Robin Gaster, author of Behemoth, Amazon Rising. A moment ago, I mentioned the Ballad of John Henry. Interestingly, the same week that Amazon employees in Alabama voted on unionizing, Boston Dynamics announced its new warehouse robot, which it calls Stretch. Stretch includes a long robotic arm with seven degrees of freedom, mounted on a mobile base that moves in any direction and can navigate obstacles and ramps. Its hand, quote-unquote, works with an array of suction cups that the company says can handle a variety of package types while operating at high speeds. We already have software that can produce news articles, so there's my job. And most technologists expect that AIs will replace most software programmers in the foreseeable future, so maybe that's your job. And that is it for the weekly briefing for the week ending April 2nd. Thank you for listening. The weekly briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.